Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. The Telegraph. Podcasts. We're not allowed now to say boo to a goose. It's full lockdown or you're immoral. The Labour Party is pretty much all Hampstead and very little Hartlepool. The only thing that's left now is for Chris Whitty to accompany us on visits to the toilet. We're not in a position where we're tackling the Black Death. We're, We're tackling something that in a serious way affects a small number of people. And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's a new year, a new day, a new dawn, as Nina Simone once almost sang. But we're not feeling good. (laughs) Not with the UK back in national lockdown until March at the earliest. Not with businesses shuttered and millions of us marooned at home. Not with the kids prevented from going back to school, with all the damage that does to their young lives, their development and life chances. And not with the lockdown costing the equivalent of £18 billion a month. That's 18 followed by nine zeros, to say nothing of the costs in terms of human anguish. What were your thoughts, Alison, on Monday night as Boris announced another national lockdown? Did you drop your gin and tonic? (laughs) You know me so well. In fact, I was going to do dry January, Halligan, but of course, everyone's had the shortest dry January in in history because once we got that news, we thought, right, how many bottles of red wine have we got in? It was dry, that was it. (laughs) It was dry, (laughs) I was watching Boris and I was thinking, I was trying to do a mental tally. I thought, how many freedoms have we got left for them to take away? Most of us have been in tier four, haven't we? So I think literally the only thing that's left now is for Chris Whitty to accompany us on visits to the toilet, isn't it? I mean, just was totally running out of it. Look, I think there's a sort of weary exhaustion, isn't there? We probably knew it was coming once again. I think it's disproportionate. We're seeing these terrible knock-on effects of already this new lockdown. GCSEs and A-levels are are cancelled. They're now talking about marking children with teacher assessments. I know some teenagers who've done badly in their mocks. And why wouldn't they do badly in their mocks, Liam? They're at home, they're demoralised, they probably missed a half of the syllabus because they can't get it online and they haven't got laptops and on and on and on. So all the collateral damage. So I I wasn't surprised, but I was weary and despairing. Do you want me to tell you honestly what I think? Go on. I feel like I'm... I know I'm innocent, but I'm having to plead guilty because you get a lesser sentence. That's 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 what it feels like now to me. It feels like we have to go along with this because there isn't any alternative. And Claire, you know, our London GP, she emailed Planet Normal this week. And Claire was actually saying that she thought that if we'd gone along with Great Barrington declaration from the beginning, that we'd probably be through this now. So that's shielding only vulnerable people, so only older people and people with pre-existing conditions, while the rest of us get on with our lives. Exactly. And Claire also said, I think you'll like this, interesting to see that Germany is now only testing people who are ill and only recording COVID deaths as those dying of COVID rather than with COVID, which has greatly improved their figures if only we could do the same. So what did you think, Liam? So Claire, Claire thinks, not her real name, thinks that had we gone Great Barrington Declaration and built up more population immunity, herd immunity, that would have left the population now in a better position Mm -hmm. than trying to vaccinate all and sundry way beyond vulnerable groups and remaining in full lockdown until that's almost or largely completed. I must say, I think the 
tone of this whole debate has changed in that there is now no debate allowed at all. Mm. And you and I, while we're not anti-lockdown, we supported the first lockdown, we've certainly been questioning of subsequent lockdowns, haven't we? Mm. And we've been arguing for the merits, possibilities of a more balanced approach where we don't use full national lockdown. And we're now at a point where you're not even allowed to say that anymore. This is what I think is happening. I think there are two extremes. The first extreme is that COVID is the most terrible infection ever, and we've got to do everything in our power to stop it, whatever the cost. The other extreme is, what on earth are we doing? This is no worse than a bad flu. We're destroying the world economy and society for no reason, right? They're the two extremes. Now, I would say the truth lies somewhere in between, right? The truth is a balancing of those two extremes. But the only thing we're hearing are those two extremes. Nobody seems interested in the truth anymore. Nobody sees interested in weighing evidence, questioning stuff, trying to come up with a rational approach. People just want to be on whichever side of these two extremes is seen as morally right, which means total lockdown. So any attempt to advocate anything that isn't total lockdown, a more balanced approach, any questioning of statistics, any questioning of the efficacy of PCR tests, if you make any of those points now in the current climate, you are deemed immoral, you are cancelled, your reputation has to be destroyed, you are morally smeared, sometimes you're even taken off air. I think that's what's really, really worrying about this, aside from, if you can say aside from, all the massive damage we're doing to society, to the economy, to our children, to our mental health from full lockdown. It seems, Alison, as if even journalists like us who marshal and weigh our facts extremely carefully and work for an extremely responsible mainstream news organisation, even us, we're not allowed now to say boo to a goose. It's full lockdown or you're immoral, that way or the highway. I think it has turned very ugly. I feel personally I'm caught between these different forces because, you know, on the one hand, We've got George working inside the NHS, very, very clear about the picture that's emerging, a much much more nuanced picture than what we're being screamed at from the TV. And on the other end, Liam, at least every day, I am getting the most distressing emails from grandparents. I mean, we'll be reading out some readers' emails later. Had some astonishing emails this week, haven't we? Absolutely astonishing. Heard from a grandmother this morning who can't go and help her daughter. The children are now suddenly not able to go to school. The the, the mother's, you know, close to breaking down. She's now supposed to homeschool, but the grandmother isn't allowed to go and help out. So there's a huge amount of human distress out there, but it's all COVID, isn't it? And I suppose where we are now is the vaccine, isn't it? Is the, you know, the, the, the vaccine is, is the only game in town. And, and I sign up to that. I know you, you and I have both said, yeah, that's absolutely f- for me, Liam. It's, it's the escape hatch. You know, I, I just want it to work so that we can not just get our lives back. If I'm going to be frank with you, I would stay indoors for the rest of my life if my young adult children could have their lives, full, rich, happy lives. That's how I feel. And I'm I'm sure that there are an awful lot of other slightly older people who agree with me. So where we are with the vaccine, Boris wants to ratchet up the vaccination programme to inject 2 million people a week so we can end the lockdown as swiftly as possible. And I guess the question is, can it be done by mid-February? We've got 1.1 million people have had their first dose. Interestingly, Liam, 650,000 of the over 80s, that's 23% of that vulnerable age group, one in four of the most vulnerable have already been vaccinated. So that's really positive. And what I'm hoping is that we can get all those people, our parents' generation, vaccinated as fast as possible. By by the way, my mum's in South Wales. All my friends who've got parents in the southeast and London, their parents appear to have been vaccinated, but um, I'm not sure some of the farther flung, perhaps poorer parts of the country have had the same attention. So, you know, that's another another question. And I thought one other good thing was that the Prime Minister said that from next Monday, they will be announcing a daily tally 
of the numbers vaccinated. And and we've called, Liam, haven't we, for more transparency in what's going on? It's totally obvious. You have to have a daily tally of vaccinations and you have to now, as the COVID recovery group of MPs have been saying, and you know, derided for it by lots of the media for saying, that we have to have a route out of this lockdown that's linked to vaccination. So when we reach certain waymarks where certain percentages of our most vulnerable are vaccinated, what freedoms then stem from the fact that that societal protection is in place? If we can lay out that route map, then businesses can start to get their heads around whether or not they can survive. The the Treasury can start to get their heads around whether or not we can continue to fund these massive, massive deficits in the wake of this latest lockdown, the Treasury's indicated that our deficit this year won't be £390 billion. It's more likely to be £500 billion, pounds, half a trillion quid in one year deficit. But it's fine. We can pay for it all with printed money, yeah, until we can't. And it's only under pressure from the likes of us for our sins and the COVID recovery group that the government has now agreed to these daily vaccination updates. It should be every single night. There should be electronic signs around the country on motorways telling you Mm. where we are. So the whole country is willing us all on. Look, we've done really well in some senses. You know, no other country has this astonishing Oxford AstraZeneca, British University, a British company. It's going to be the workhorse of vaccination around the world given that it's cheap and it can be easily transported and you can keep it in the domestic fridge. But still, we've got bureaucracy stopping the vaccination happening fast enough. We've got Public Health England absurdly saying that they're not going to vaccinate on Sundays and all. We better (laughs) make sure we've got a lunch hour. I mean, imagine if people were saying that in the middle of the blitz, some air raid ward. No, I was going to tell you there was a bomb coming, but I was busy eating my egg sandwich, so I couldn't (laughs) do it. Sorry, Gov, more than my job's worth. I mean, we have to break through these petty and absurd bureaucracies. The Telegraph actually had a really good story, which was that absurdly, again, that the government was not involving pharmacies. Now, pharmacies, we know, Liam, throughout the first lockdown, pharmacists were were more used than many GPs. I mean, they became became de facto GPs and they give out. My family has its flu vaccinations in our excellent pharmacy around the corner. So the idea that they were going to exclude pharmacies, for, for what reason? From some sort of red tape. But thanks to the Telegraph story yesterday... There's been a, another screeching U-turn on that. So pharmacists will be involved. But I quite agree. And there was a Planet Normal listener who said, we need to regard the vaccination as we regarded Spitfires in 1939. We need to get them up in the air. You know, that there shouldn't be these, oh, I don't think that's allowed. Oh, we can't work on Sundays. And they are. I'm, I'm glad to see they've drafted in 5,000 military personnel. And that's, you know, if you want something done Get the army to do it. Can we share our favourite stat of the week? Go on then. Is this a Velma moment? Scooby-Doo. It's obligatoire. It's obligatoire. That's what I haven't heard for a while. That was when I used to tease you that you had a secret crush on Emmanuel Macron. How's that going? Is his poster still on your wall alongside David Cassidy? I think I'm young. I'm younger than Mrs. Macron, mate. I tell you, earlier this week, how many vaccinations do you think France had done earlier this week? Nul point. Six hundred and seventeen. Yeah. So, are we Brexiteers? Are we permitted a tiny gloat that the EU has been absolutely shambolic? at uh, getting the vaccine sorted out, hasn't it? I mean, you were telling me that the Germans are up in arms, aren't they? Oh, unreal. If you follow the German press, you've got, you know, really respected publications like Der Spiegel doing investigative journalism into just how slow the EU has been getting its vaccination programme off the ground. More concerned that everybody does everything together Mm. uh, and with the sort of EU anthem and flags waving rather than just getting this stuff out the door. And they're uh, build the main German tabloid, Die Welt, uh, as well as Der Spiegel, right across the firmament there of the German press, really laying into the EU in a pretty unprecedented way. And our excellent colleague, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, mm, one brilliant. of the most interesting writers on The Telegraph. I mean, Ambrose is a, a very civilised, very pro-European person who does not do hyperbole. And he wrote an app, a yeah, really scorcher. fire-breathing column 
European vaccine blunders threaten the entire EU project, laced with killer facts about what's happening. Not to cast aspersions and wish ill on our friends and neighbours nearby, but our culture is different in the sense that for all the fear about debates, for all the closing down of discourse that we've seen this week, here in the UK, the vast, vast majority of people are more than willing and prepared and eager to take the vaccine. Mm. The anti-vax movement in this country, of which we are in no way a part and we <laughs> disdain, is a very small minority. You know, 80 odd percent of Brits would instantly take the vaccine. In France, it's more like 30 percent, according to polling data. Gosh, I didn't know that. What this really reflects, Alison, is a lack of faith in some EU countries in institutions. We can knock Britain and we can kick the shins of the government, as you and I do for a living, and we can gripe and we can moan and all the rest of it. But in the end, there's a sense of trust that most British people trust the state to oversee a programme of magazine manufacture and dispersion that they will trust literally with their lives. That is not the case in many, many other countries, including some of our nearest neighbours. And the, this combination of the fact that we've got this Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine first, we've got it regulated and approved, and we've got it in big numbers, plus the willingness of our fellow countrymen and women to have this vaccine, puts us amidst all this gloom in a pretty good position. I think that's right. And we are lucky in that way. And we obviously have got that extraordinary entrepreneurial scientific dynamism at the development of the vaccine stage. But coming back to what you're saying about the feet draggers. So we've heard from Telegraph readers, also Planet Normal listeners, retired nurses and doctors, Liam, who are prepared to give up their own free time to get, you know, to get on board this great national effort. And um, and there was this unbelievable thing that many of them had been rebuffed because they needed to produce 21 pieces of paper <laughs> to be able to stick a needle in someone's arm. And, and, and I think my favourite bit was the fact that you had to have done prevent anti-terrorist training. <laughs> <laughs> you, need, you need diversity training and fire prevention <laughs> knowledge <laughs> to sit in a school gym as a doctor with 40 years experience injecting people. Now, Liam, I know that Planet Normal listeners really value in this time of heightened facts being thrown around. They really value George, not their real name, who is our fantastic insider in the NHS. And just tell you a couple of things that... Of, of remarks that George made for us this week. Just a disclaimer, Alison, for new listeners. So George, not their real name, is an insider in NHS England who has access to NHS England data, somebody who you have come to know. We've checked out who he or she is. Absolutely. We have their bona fides. Uh, and George feeds you data and answers your questions about what's actually happening in our hospitals. That's right. This is actually data that's freely available, by the way, and I'm going to mention that as I go along. George says, you know, that everywhere now, all the headlines, Liam, are screaming, hospitals overwhelmed. George says, it's utterly meaningless to compare now to April. Before the April peak, they cleared all the hospitals. So, of course, they're going to be more full now. Plus, it's the middle of winter. Now, George says that London is showing promising early signs it has peaked. East of England and southeast are not quite there yet. But if you look at the interactive map, and I'm just going to give everybody the, the details, Liam, it's coronavirus, all lowercase, dot data, dot gov, dot uk. That's coronavirus, dot data, dot gov, dot uk. And George says it clearly suggests that cases are now starting to subside in Kent and East London, which you'll remember were hotspots. Absolutely. Cases are down by up to 20% in the seven days to the 28th of December. This means that neighbouring areas like Essex should soon follow. Their increase in cases in that same data was very small, only 1%. Places like Cornwall are seeing increasing cases, but basically every area of the country will have to have its little bubble up of cases before this is over or before enough people are vaccinated. That's how viruses work. So this latest increase has mainly affected 
places that weren't so heavily hit in April. And let's come to my HBO moments, your hospital bed occupancy correspondent. (laughs) Oh, God, the glamour. Nationally, 85% hospital bed occupancy on December the 31st, compared to 92% at the end of December last year. Let's have another rider. Some question about whether it's directly comparable because they've made some changes. But George said the note on the system allows you to make that comparison. He says the best indicator for deaths is the Office for National Statistics, which is showing only a slight excess for this time of year. When you compare that to the huge number of excess deaths in April, it's almost nothing. And it's largely now offset by the reduction in the normal levels of respiratory deaths, which are way below the five-year average. Excess deaths is the only indicator that really matters as long as it's adjusted for growth in population and also an ageing population. So so George has just gone to really great trouble for us, Liam, to look at critical care beds. He checked out the October to December quarter. This is quite crucial. Nationally, critical care bed occupancy was no different to the last five years. The southeast was the same. London was higher than normal. But the fact that the national rate was normal suggests other regions must be lower than normal. And just going to say this loudly and clearly, general bed occupancy was lower than at any point in the last 10 years. It's absolutely astonishing, isn't it? I'm now looking at the Public Health England All-Cause Mortality Surveillance Bulletin, because that's the kind of guy I am. (laughs) Um, The week 53 report up to week 52 data. And it says, and I quote, in week 52, 2020, there was no statistically significant excess all-cause mortality by week of death in either England or Wales. That is compared to the same week in 2019. And if you look at the graph that accompanies this bulletin, you do see a sharp peak in deaths in April. Mm. Of course, COVID is bad. It stripped out a lot of more vulnerable members of our population before their time in many cases tragically and we're right to respond to that we did a lockdown and and that was the right thing but if you look at this winter spike in deaths now it's roughly the same as 2018 and 2019 and it's lower than 2016 and 2017 and that is what the official data shows again a rider because we're responsible people this data should be interpreted with caution public health england says of this very latest data due to delays in reporting over the Christmas period. Mm. So we will see. But on the current evidence, death rates this winter are similar to 2018 and 2019. That is what the data shows. Have you heard that on the television news? No. I have to emphasise, Liam, that George and Claire are both saying, yes, it's very busy. But George says... Apart from for three hospitals in the southeast, all of the hospitals have seen this level of busyness in the last five years. So it's not unprecedented. And by the way, we are in week two now. That's that's the way that they um, measure the hospital data. We're in week two is its historical average peak for flu viruses. So theoretically... This could be about as bad as it gets now. What we've seen, these really rather horrifying large figures in the last few days, we had two bank holidays back to back, didn't we? And the the figures over the bank holidays are always really askew. So it should settle down again this week and we'll be it hopefully we're seeing the trend turning. And you know, I really, really hope that we are, because we're not underestimating the strain that you know we've heard from doctors and nurses who are who are dealing with very very difficult things and can i can i say liam because sometimes you know i get accused of being anti nhs when i started looking you know back in 
May when we began and I started digging down into this data, I was horrified to discover how poorly provided for British hospitals were compared to many European counterparts. So when it comes to ICU beds, we have about 9.6 per 100,000 of population and Germany has about 32. So when we are out of this nightmare, let's start looking at properly providing a number of beds which doesn't run on 99% occupancy every winter and doesn't have any slack in the system. So if you have a disaster such as COVID come along, we are more able to provide the kind of treatment and facilities that a a civilised country should have. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper. And you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show. Mine! As the Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Now, there was a lot of love out there for last week's Planet Normal end-of-year special, in which we featured clips from 10 of our best interviews of 2020, plus a feature interview with the iconic singer Patti Boulay. Thanks for all your warm feedback, and do leave reviews and ratings for Planet Normal on Apple iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This week, we're delighted to welcome one of the UK's most interesting up-and-coming commentators, Paul Embry. Paul was brought up in Dagenham on the fringes of East London, in a staunchly working-class community. He's a long-term member of the Labour Party, a firefighter and trade union activist. But he's written a book, Despised Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class, that takes the Labour Party to pieces. By dint of his background and passionate advocacy, Paul is a planet normal natural. And I started by asking him why he wrote his book. I think it was what I saw firsthand in the community where I grew up, Barking and Dagenham uh, in East London, which was pretty much a solid Labour heartland. I know the red wall description has been applied usually to kind of northern and midland seats, but I would argue it probably applies to, to those sorts of seats as well. And particularly, I think in the first decade of this century, we saw the acute effects of globalisation really taking hold in some of these communities like Barking and Dagenham in terms of deindustrialization, in terms of rapid and large-scale movements of people. And I think people were very uncomfortable with it. They felt that their sense of order had been violated. They didn't particularly see the benefits of globalisation as, as it was being preached to them by politicians, particularly new Labour politicians. And I feel that that's really when the rot began to, to set in in earnest and, and Labour started to hemorrhage lots of working class votes across the country. But Blairism, if you like, from the mid 90s and into the first decade of this century, that was the peak of Labour's post-war success. But in your book, you say they became too Hampstead and not enough Hartlepool. But wasn't Blairism necessary for them to win? Why did they become unhinged from their working class roots, treating traditional Labour voters, as you say, with disdain. Well, as you say, yeah, I do argue that, that Labour has always been a historic electoral compromise between its, you know, traditional blue collar working class folk and, you know, a layer of, if you like, middle class liberals uh, who are favourable to the idea of a Labour government and a fairer society and, and economy. But I think what happened with the Labour Party over the last 30 years is that it kind of took the working class element of, of that vote for granted. It thought that they would never have anywhere else to go. And the push that was made, with some justification, I think, by Blair in the 90s, to reach out to a wider layer of middle class support. In the end, I think the pendulum swung too far to the point where now the Labour Party is pretty much all Hampstead and very little Hartlepool. And you look now 
uh, at the party, and I've been a member of the party for 26 years. And it is largely a party of kind of middle class graduates based in our fashionable city, a party of kind of students and social activists. A working class element of it has disappeared. And working class people, I think, look at the party now and think, well, you guys don't particularly look like me. You don't sound like me. Your priorities are not my priorities. And that ended in what we saw last December at the ballot box. Now, when Blair came into office in 1997, net immigration into the UK was 50,000. It then escalated. And by the time of the year before the Brexit referendum in 2015, it was eight times higher. So increasing under both Blair and David Cameron. Tell me the impact of that on Dagenham. I know in 2001, over 80% of residents in the borough were white British in the British census. And a decade later, those white British residents were in a minority. What did that mean on the ground? Well, I, I was living in Barking and Dagenham at the time that it was experiencing this rapid demographic change. And what was, I think, a tolerant community, which would have accepted a, a modest number of new arrivals, was suddenly ripped apart in many, in many respects because people's sense of order, not their sense of race, but their sense of order had been violated. And, you know, I outline in the, the book, the, the profound way in which the community change and, and the statistics demonstrating that. And what we saw was a, a Labour heartland. I mean, it was the old saying people used to weigh the Labour votes in Barking and Dagenham. They didn't used to count them as a result of these profound changes that were taking place. And, and the fact that politicians, Labour politicians, particularly at the time, we're not recognising those concerns. We saw the emergence of the BNP in Barking and Dagenham. And at the 2006 local elections, the BNP won 12 seats and became the official opposition on the, the council, its best result in local government. And I argued from that point, look, unless we start to listen to these people in communities like this, which really are suffering the acute effects of globalisation, then the Labour Party and the left will just lose the support of, of people who would be their natural support. That's exactly what's happened up and down the country. And for Barking and Dagenham, you can read other post-industrial uh, communities out there who have suffered the same kind of impacts of rapid and large-scale movements of, of labour. And my simple argument on that is, look, rapid and large-scale movements of labour have got the same capacity to cause social and economic disruption in working class communities as rapid and large scale movements of capital. And that's not a racist point to make. It's not a xenophobic point to make. It's simply about trying to respect people's sense of place and belonging. Yes, to immigration, it's good. It brings benefits. But like all things, it needs to be in moderation. And people that expressed anxiety were dubbed as xenophobic, weren't they? I know the incumbent Labour MP, Margaret Hodge, was shouting very loudly within the Labour Party to say that policy needed to change. And yet the broad message from your party was that people who raised concerns like you were raising concerns were racist. Yeah, and I, I saw that. Um, I saw that with my own eyes. I saw people who were traditional Labour supporters, uh, fundamentally decent people who were dismissed as racists and, and xenophobes. And, you know, the, the truth is a large part of the Labour Party now, a large part of the wider left, do look at any body who argues against the, the concept of open borders, which actually, until fairly recently, was quite a fringe position on the left. Open borders was an idea usually espoused by, you know, Trotskyists and, and anarchists and, and radical liberals. But nowadays, it's regarded, if you believe in, in control of the labour supply, you're regarded as a racist and a xenophobe and all the rest of it. And I kind of find it quite bizarre, actually, that a position that was fairly mainstream until recently, you know, because lots of people in the Labour Party and in the trade union movement understood that the labour supply was a market dynamic, which, like all market dynamics, needed to be regulated so as to provide the best outcome for workers. But you argue that now and you're demonised and you're dismissed as a, as a racist. And I think that shows really how far the Labour Party has moved away from mainstream uh, mainstream opinion. And it's no surprise that on issues like that, they're completely out of kilter from millions of ordinary working class people up and down the country. Your book really gets into gear, if I may say so, Paul, when you write about identity politics. The Labour Party, you say, neither looks nor sounds like those it was created to represent. And you talk with sort of controlled rage <laughs> about toy town revolutionaries, middle-class liberals playing at radicalism. You say identity politics about race, sexuality, gender is a way for high-status whites to differentiate themselves from low 
status whites. Bien pensant using identity politics to signify their high status while affecting no change in the real world. That's only happened in the last two or three years, hasn't it? I think it certainly happened recently, and I think it's gone hand in hand with the fact that the left generally has itself become more middle class. And because of the fact that the left itself has become more middle class, it has become less, if you like, preoccupied with the, the real bread and butter issues that affect ordinary working class people, you know, jobs and wages and housing and all of that sort of stuff. And perhaps because the movement as a whole, the, the foot soldiers of the movement are less directly affected as individuals over those issues than, than perhaps the movement's foot soldiers used to be. So what we see now as a consequence of that is, yeah, this, this escalation of this divisive identity politics, which I think is causing massive fragmentation on the left and among the working class. And I think we also see as a, as a corollary of that, the fact that the issues that preoccupy the left now are those more kind of middle class issues. So the average labor activist will constantly, you know, want to talk about things like LGBT rights and climate change and trans rights and migrant rights and that kind of thing. And, and I always say, look, that stuff's important. I'm not suggesting for a second we shouldn't discuss that stuff. You'd be a fool not to say a mainstream political party shouldn't discuss climate change, for example. But these are secondary issues in the lives of ordinary working class people. These are not the doorstep issues that they want to raise with their politicians. They want to talk about things like, you know, jobs and wages and law and order and national security, the impact of social housing, social housing, all of the things that cause them stress in their everyday lives and they want politicians to resolve. And until the Labour Party gets back onto that territory, until it starts speaking that language again, it's not going to win back those, uh, those Red Bull seats. You conclude, Paul, by saying the left, if it is to halt the slide towards irrelevance, had better start listening. Do you see signs that the left is listening under Keir Starmer? Have they reached out to you, a loyal party member? with an increasingly high profile and increasingly uh, relevant voice? Well, I mean, I have to say when when Starmer was was elected, he wasn't my leader of choice. And, and in fact, I, I didn't vote for any of the candidates because I didn't think any of them really, really got it. In truth, I've been you know, quietly surprised and, and quite pleased with some of the stuff that he's done. I mean, he's, he's certainly on Brexit, I think, has taken the right line. Look, it's done. We can't refight that war. You know, we need to, we need to get on and move on to other stuff. And I was pleased that he, he didn't try and put up any opposition to the, to the deal that was recently signed. I think if you look at his conference speech a few months ago, he started, you know, talking about things like, patriotism and community and family, all of those things that really matter to working class people. To what extent do you think the debate over lockdown, Paul, has been driven in part by identity politics, by the kind of cultural divide hangover from the Brexit debate? I certainly sense some of the same type of language that was used in the Brexit debate being expressed now in the lockdown debate. We've kind of got into a tendency, and I think it's quite disturbing, where anyone who kind of offers an alternative opinion away from the political establishment, away from the mainstream, particularly on the left, is kind of demonised and told that they shouldn't be allowed to express that opinion. And, and, you know, this calls on the media for the media to ban people from from a platform. So some of that, I think, is really disturbing. I think there's a class issue there, certainly in terms of the fact that the working class don't have the ability as much as middle class people to do to work from home. They usually work in more blue collar jobs, manual labor, physical labor, etc. So when I think people say, you know, it's absolutely right to, to have these blanket national lockdowns, they perhaps I think miss some of the real impact that that has on working class people. I must say on Planet Normal, we've had a lot of pushback when we've tried to just discuss a balanced approach to lockdown, maybe a, an age-stratified approach to lockdown, even in the wake of a vaccine when you've vaccinated the most vulnerable people, the older people and people of working age who have pre-existing medical conditions. There's pushback even on that. No one's arguing against vaccinations. I mean, we're far from being anti-vax people, the Great Barrington Declaration scientists, epidemiologists like Sunetra Gupta, and others, you know, leading global authorities. I mean, they've been absolutely demonised 
for putting forward anything other than absolute complete blanket lockdown now and at all times. There's been throughout this debate a striking lack of perspective and proportion. And I think that's the disturbing thing. I mean, there, there are some cranks at the extremes of the debate. There's, there's no question about that. But I think there are genuine people, many of them who have expressed concerns over the, the, the effects of total national blanket lockdowns. I think we're only, you know, seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of some of those effects at the moment. I think the real problems are still to come. And yeah, I just try and make the point to, to people, look, Yes, COVID is very plainly real. Yes, in a small minority of cases, it can be very serious. It can be fatal in a, in a small minority of cases. But actually, for the vast, vast majority of people, it does not pose a serious threat. And you have to ask, look, is it wise to effectively quarantine millions and millions of healthy people with all of the effect that's going to have in terms of the economy and jobs and our ability to fund public services, people's, people's health from other conditions, cardiovascular conditions, mental health, etc. At least let's have a debate about whether there's a, a better way to do it. Um, we're not in a position where we're tackling the black death. We're, we're tackling something that you know, in a serious way affects a small number of people. Yes, absolutely. Give the vulnerable whatever support we can. I've argued that we should devote whatever resources we can from the state and civil society to, to protecting the genuinely vulnerable. But I'm, I'm really concerned about the, the impact of blanket lockdowns, which don't think we're going to see the effects yet for some time. But when we do, we'll certainly know about it. I mean, I watched wide eyed over the Christmas period where you tweeted a link to an NHS England statistic, an official statistic showing that since the start of the pandemic, there'd been 377 COVID-related deaths in hospital involving patients under 60 with no pre-existing condition. 377 too many, but a relatively small number in the grand scheme of things. And what you were trying to demonstrate using an official statistic, Paul, is exactly what you just said. And you were absolutely torn to pieces, weren't you? Just for linking to an NHS England statistic with a very evenly worded piece of commentary by you. I mean, I have to say it was it was an experience. If the statistic had been wrong, then of course you would fully expect on a on an important issue like this to be torn apart. But as you say, I, I simply lifted the statistic directly from a spreadsheet on the NHS England website. No one has debunked it. It's been put out there by the NHS. It's clearly correct. It was a real case of, of shooting the messenger. You know, it, the, the statistic was pretty straightforward. 377 COVID-related deaths involving individuals under 60 and without a pre-existing condition. In hospital. In hospital, absolutely, in hospital. And you made that distinction clear too in a subsequent tweet you're talking about people in hospital rather than people in care homes or in their own home. Quite right. And, you know, if people have got a problem with my argument generally on on lockdown or, or whatever, then, of course, you know, that's fair game and, and we can have that debate. But the way in which some people went for me simply for quoting without comment an official NHS statistic was quite chilling in some respects. I mean, it didn't bother me on a personal level. And these are like tenured professors that are trying to rip you to pieces, right? These were not, you know, the the, the anonymous internet trolls. These were, as you as you said, you know, in some cases, luminous professors and, and people with serious qualifications who who were making all sorts of accusations against me that I'd, I'd lied with statistics and, and all of this kind of stuff. But, and, you know, you have to make a decision when that happens. You have to say, look, am I going to go into the bunker? Am I going to be bullied by the, these people, even though I'm, I'm quoting official statistics? Or am I going to come out fighting and defend my corner? And I decided, you know, it was not a choice, really. You do the latter. You, what you've said is, is factually accurate. And just because it's inconvenient for some people and it doesn't fit with their argument, well, the problem is theirs. And, you know, you have to face these people down. I think it's truth is important. Objective truth is important in these debates. Now, you are a, a trade unionist. You're a firefighter. You're not from a, a typical, if I may say so, background for somebody to become a prominent commentator in this country. You were given your break, weren't you, by the website Unheard, which deserves a lot of credit for bringing your writing and that of other writers to prominence. What do you think it says about the British media, broadcasters, the newspapers, that people with your insight and talent and ability so rarely get 
the kind of public platforms to say what you know? I think there is a a real absence of, if you like, ordinary working class voices in the in the mainstream media. It is, I think, an industry that is still dominated by the the, the wealthier, more affluent middle classes, people who have been privately educated, etc. And and often kind of coalesces around a particular established view, very much in in many cases a kind of liberal left approach to, to social and political questions. And, you know, I think when ordinary working class voices do come through, I think it's healthy. Um, I think it kind of sets them back on their heels sometimes because they don't know how to deal with it. In my case, for example, I said in the lead up to the general election that the Labour Party was going to be smashed and it was going to lose its red wall. And and I was able to say that because of living for many, many years in one of those kind of working class communities. I had first-hand experience of it. I knew what people were saying in those communities. I could see what was happening. I could see what, what was going to happen to the Labour Party. And that, if you like, insight is what working class people can bring, I think, into the, into the media in a way that people who have never lived in those communities and have simply spent their lives looking from the outside in just don't understand it. So I think there's a place for a blossoming of, of working class talent and voices in the mainstream media. Platforms like Unheard allow me to do it. Um, there are one or two others as well, but we need more of it, that's for sure. Paul sounds like such a planet normal person. He makes so many good points, doesn't he, Liam, about how identity politics, which is riddled through the left now, is a bit of a luxury for people who are struggling to put food on the table or pay the bills. I mean, you know, I'd vote for Paul as Labour leader, I think. What was your feeling talking to him? He's a very, very sharp guy. His book, Despised Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class, is well worth a read. I, I read it in a couple of sittings. And what really caught my eye just before I interviewed him, Alison, is that he said on Twitter, he, as we discussed there, he lifted a statistic from NHS England mm. ar- about mm. the relatively small number of deaths, 377 among under 60s who died in hospital without pre-existing health conditions. And he was absolutely marmalised by a wave of tenured professors saying, you're evil, you mustn't say these things, you are anti-lockdown, you're a COVID denier, et cetera, et cetera. He was literally citing a publicly available piece of data. Well, you'll know, Liam, that I've been on the receiving end of the same pitchforks myself this week. It's a pretty interesting experience. I mean, my story was quite similar to Paul's in that I'd posted something on Twitter which came direct from George. It was NHS England data about hospital bed occupancy. And I was trying to be a bit more positive, putting something out to counter this, you know, sort of tidal wave of of panic and dread. I saw that some guy who's a scientist had called me some very unpleasant things and said that I was using information to stir up hatred against the NHS. And I thought, how the hell am I using actual NHS data to stir up hatred. And these are very feverish times, Liam. I acted foolishly. I was really angry. By the way, the individual on Twitter did apologise and and has taken down the tweets. And I accepted the apology and said that we wouldn't take it any further. And also, perhaps we could go forward and have slightly more civilised debate than um, accusing people of misusing information when it was quoting from official data. And, you know, one of the reasons I was so angry was because George and the other NHS employees who've got in touch with Planet Normal are putting their careers on the line to share the truth with the British people. And I thought, how dare you accuse me of, you know, misusing data or stirring up hatred against the NHS. So I overreacted and I, I do think that was that was wrong and I should have been the bigger person. Particularly in this last week, as this third lockdown has ensued, the climate has completely changed where any discussion of the right way to balance our approach to this national emergency is met with disconsternation. I mean, we had people on Twitter, you know, national newspaper journalists complaining that the Today programme, to their credit, interviewed Shanetra Gupta earlier oh, this week. Right. You know, Oxford epidemiologist, you know, world-leading professor, because she has a slightly different view and she's been promoting this idea of age 
based shielding rather than completely shielding across the population. And yet an Oxford professor or any professor, frankly, who advocates that view on our leading radio program mm-hmm. is being told by national newspaper correspondents she shouldn't have that right. It's completely mad. Look at YouTube taking down talk radio uh, shows just because yes. some of their presenters, some of their presenters, others take a contrary view, some of their presenters have taken a more questioning approach to lockdown. They're not saying it's a hoax. They're not saying that people shouldn't take the vaccine. They are exercising their democratic right to express a view, a view that's shared by many, many scientists and leading epidemiologists and many members of the public who have done their own research. And yet apparently we're no longer allowed to express those views. It's outrageous. So on to our reader emails, a selection of the messages that you've sent to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. We love reading your messages. They're incredibly interesting and honest, and we do learn so much from you, our fellow Planet Normal citizens. So here's a great email from Robert. Happy New Year to you both, and a huge thanks for your ongoing balanced coverage of the COVID situation. I'm a consultant and aesthetist in a hospital with very little COVID, and I have two weeks annual leave coming up and nowhere to go. (laughs) I've spent the last week emailing trusts, both HR departments and clinicians to offer my services in the southeast, but not a single person has replied to me. I'm an experienced ICU clinician, and if shortages are as worrying as the media would have us believe, I just don't understand why no one has replied to at least inquire further regarding my offer. Is there a chance it's just not as dramatic as the mainstream media keeps insisting to sell headlines using hysteria and a small pool of stressed doctors who don't represent me? I should add, if you do know anyone who feels I could be put to use for a few weeks, that offer still stands. And perhaps people will start to reply to me, but I won't hold my breath. A cracking email from Lucy, a 21-year-old geophysics student. I'll just read an excerpt so you get the gist. I was introduced to Planet Normal by my boyfriend, says Lucy, and it's kept me sane ever since the summer. And not only that, my whole family are now with you on the rocket. I love listening to the stories you break and the real investigative journalism, not just doom peddling like most other media sources at the moment. Each time the government comes out with yet more science, I get more and more embarrassed to be a scientist myself. As university students, we're some of the most forgotten people in this pandemic. We're expected to comply with rules that frankly destroy our education and mental health. We're blamed for outbreaks and guilt trips that this is our fault. Our grandparents' generation are dying. We're completely forgotten by any of Rishi's support packages and we're at the end of the vaccination queue. Now, Lucy tells of her situation, her studies and planned field trips and employment vital to completing and paying for her degree. She's banned from working in a lab, yet she has to produce a research dissertation requiring extensive lab work. My project's due in just eight weeks, she says, and right now I have little to show for it. And all this time I'm forking out, she says, nearly London level prices for a private rental with no chance of a refund. And we're still being charged £9,250 for another year of so-called teaching. With all this going on, and here's the clincher, with all this going on, she says, I honestly now fear more that I will lose someone close to me to stress or suicide than I will to COVID. And I have three grandparents, all over 80. Thanks for Planet Normal and everything you do, says Lucy. And I really hope you'll take up the banner of university students over the next few weeks. Well, Lucy, we certainly will. I think we should get her on, Liam. I think it'd be really really valuable to have an articulate, as Lucy says, university students have been completely shafted and forgotten. Here's Alan. I really agree with this one. It's great that we have a vaccine and it's being rolled out. Let's be clear. As soon as all seriously vulnerable members of the population have been protected through vaccination, all COVID restrictions should be removed. What possible justification can there be for continuing to impose any of these measures with the vast damage caused to the economy, education and personal freedom? Hear, hear, Alan. This is from Zena. Dear Liam and Velma. There you go. (laughs) I honestly don't know what to do, says Zena. I'm at a complete loss. I should be trying to get some work done while my two daughters are currently occupied on the one Teams call they'll have with their school today, but I'm just bereft. I feel so lost and alone. 
Why is no one up in arms about the fact we have sleepwalked our way into the first working week of 2021 with schools closed and no plan as to when they can reopen? We're scrambling to figure out how we'll cope with this as two working parents trying to hold on to our jobs and pay our taxes. We feel completely kneecapped and I now, now carry around a pit in my stomach I can't get rid of. We try to be cheerful and put on a brave face for the children, but we're exhausted and bewildered. How is it in the best interest of the country to close schools that were perfectly safe a few short weeks ago? Please help us to air our voices and thanks for all you do. I'm no longer angry, says Zena, just very sad. Oh, goodness. And we remember also that Boris told Andrew Marr on Sunday morning that schools are perfectly safe. And indeed, Liam, schools are Certainly schools of primary and junior schools are perfectly safe. So millions of little children are being denied the safety of school and their parents, the comfort of having somewhere for them to go. So this is a similar vein from Sue. Thank you for highlighting the damage being done to a generation and their parents by the second closure of schools. I'm a grandparent and saw at first hand what lockdown did to my grandchildren. Second time around, I can see the damage being done to their parents. We cannot rush to their aid as we are self-isolating. All we can do is watch them suffer from afar as they take up their weary burden of homeschooling once again. Homeschooling does not work for primary school children. They need to be in the social structure of schools to to thrive. Us for them, that's the great campaigning parents organisation, Liam, is doing a sterling job of support and protest. Please continue to campaign against this madness, I beg you. Here's a final one from me. It's a Facebook post from Rod Grant, the headmaster of Clifton Hall School in Edinburgh. And thanks to Nicola for sending it into Planet Normal. Children no longer matter, says Rod Grant. In 31 years of teaching, I don't think I've ever felt so despondent and so concerned at the same time. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not some radical on the fringes of a fringe. I'm a headmaster, and this is what I see. In the last three months in my school and schools like it, I'm witnessing mental health issues unlike anything I've seen in my career. This is not me trying to be dramatic or to overplay what lockdown actually does to children. I am seeing children being diagnosed with clinical depression, increasing rates of self-harm, suicidal ideation, and something I haven't seen for at least 20 years, a resurgence of eating disorders. Add to this those students who are displaying worrying levels of anxiety, the same students that describe online learning as stress-inducing. Anyone that's been involved in a Zoom meeting knows how stressful it can be. And yet the great solution to our educational recovery is apparently online learning. Well, I'm an educator and I think at best it's a horribly poor substitute for in-school learning. Throughout this pandemic, the needs of our children seem to be at the bottom of every government's priority list. And at the moment, there seems to be no alternative voice, no political party willing to stand up for children, no media criticism, merely more nodding in agreement that lockdown is the only solution. Well, just remember, in our attempts to suppress a virus and to, quote, save the NHS, that the price we pay is the downward spiral in the mental well-being of our children and a legacy of underachievement as a result. Children need to be with their friends. They need to play. They need to develop their social and academic skills. How dare we have created an environment where a five-year-old can say, I can't play with Freddie because he's not in my bubble. It's the stuff of nonsense. And it's our children who will end up being this lockdown's collateral damage. Schools need to be open and they need to be open now. Rod Grant, headmaster, Clifton Hall School, Edinburgh. Brilliant. Brilliant. Isn't it good that there are some headmasters or some head teachers who are prepared to speak out like that and so eloquently, and I agree with every single word. And this is from Alan. You'll like this. Alan posts the news about talk radio being silenced. Google-owned YouTube quotes, terminated for violating YouTube community guidelines. How long before they shut Planet Normal down for daring to tell the truth? Are we, st- are we still? Are we still on air, Halligan? Are we still? Are we st- <laughs> Sorry, sorry. <laughs> oh, there's a knock at the door. <laughs> We're being taken away taken by away. the thought police. Oh no! Interesting that YouTube were forced to climb down. They have yeah. now reinstated the talk radio channel. And look, talk radio—they're from a different stable to to the Telegraph. They're part mm. of uh, a completely different media company. But journalists should be standing together on this. And I cannot believe how many journalists have gleefully tried to close down debate. These people aren't journalists. 
They're careerist civil servants. They shouldn't be in journalism. So that's it for our first voyage to Planet Normal of 2021. Strap yourself in for re-entry to the madness of planet Earth. Keep your spacesuit and your ray gun handy, because we're back next week for another blast-off in our Rockets of Right Thinking, our capsule of common sense. We do hope you enjoy Planet Normal as much as Liam and I enjoy recording this podcast and receiving all your wonderful and insightful feedback. If you like what we're doing and want more Planet Normal, you can help us by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Spread the word, tell your friends. And if you don't know how to leave a review and would like to, please write to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk and we'll tell you. So as we speed from our beloved Planet Normal, our sanctuary of sweet reason, our refuge of reasoned views, thanks as ever to our top team. Producers Rhys Gunter, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, Theo Leludis. So stay safe, stay in touch, and keep smiling. And until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him.